to the Battleground, Wisconsin. My name is Matt Ruffy. I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action. And welcome to another hot, humid summer week from Wisconsin. We have our whole panel all safely in their homes, which means Claire Zalke, our healthcare director, is with us. Claire, good to have you. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to see you. Good to see you. And also, Robert Craig is with us, our executive director here at Citizen Action. Robert. Good day, everyone. So, uh, it's it's a hot, 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 sticky one this week, and we have a a hot lineup of issues. We We are going to talk and get started by talking about the, oh, Robert loves to call them the politicians in robes, our Wisconsin Supreme Court. Uh, had a very uh, big ruling that came down upholding the lame duck laws uh, that were passed, uh, geez, what a uh, year and a half ago. We'll talk, we'll lead by talking about that. We're going to talk about COVID too. There's so much COVID news uh, that we need to talk about. And then also, uh, we did a big event this week online with uh, Senator Tammy Baldwin around uh, launching a new jobs program and really talking about big things we ought to be doing uh, in this time of COVID around uh, the economy. And then uh, we're going to talk also about Biden and Sanders. Uh, they uh, got together and are have released a platform that attempts to, uh, to, to have some sort of party unification and push Joe Biden in a more progressive uh, uh, direction. And then uh, we also are going to close by talking about Governor Tony Evil's Evers People's Map Commission. Let's get started. Uh, the Supreme Court, our politicians in robes here in Wisconsin, uh, upheld most of the lame duck laws uh, that um, were passed before uh, Governor Evers and the current legislature took office at the end of 2018. And these were incredibly well-publicized and quite frankly, unpopular with the public physicians. But um, no surprise here, and I'll throw it to the panel, our um, very conservative and political uh, Supreme Court has upheld essentially these laws which strip Governor Evers and also our Attorney General, Josh Call, from um, uh, some of their power. Um, Robert, why don't you uh, kick us off and uh, give us your top lines on this verdict, and then uh, and then we'll send it to Claire. Well, I don't want to speak for Claire, but this panel, I believe, is hardly surprised by this decision because this is an exceedingly partisan Supreme Court. It's sort of like the U.S. Supreme Court without Justice Roberts, who at least is pragmatic and doesn't simply vote the right-wing line. Which means, you know, since I say these are politicians in robes all the time, that they come out with a modern right-wing position uh, to their political advantage and give a whole bunch of legal rationalizations, not as clever as the U.S. Supreme Court rationalizations for how they reached it. And I'm just going to be interested to see what happens if we continue to have a Supreme Court like this and it reverses and we have a Republican governor, Democratic legislature, how they take all the powers back. Robert, it is worth pointing out before we go to Claire uh, that this Supreme Court verdict did include Justice Kelly, who has lost his election and ought not be ruling on these. Claire? It's interesting that uh, Judge Kelly was the judge that was um, charged with writing the small part of the ruling that was favorable to the governor. Um, It's 
it would be easy to overstate um, the importance of of that. Um, there was a small portion of the ruling that was uh, favorable to the governor. Really, it was it was not the bulk of the case and the the parts of the lame duck laws that were most important. Um, it is interesting that uh, Judge Kelly wrote, um, and I quote that that this part that they struck down um, about the governor needing to seek public comment before issuing some guidance on um, interpreting his interpretation of laws would quote, uh, demote the executive branch to a wholly owned subsidiary of the legislature, um, because th uh, that is how I sort of view um, what previous rulings have, have done, especially as it relates to the COVID-19 response. Um, this, is, this is a quote that would make it seem as if uh, the, the justices were interested in maintaining some sort of balance of power between the branches of government. Um, and yet the, the legislature has wrested from the governor's hands um, a significant amount of power to handle this uh, pandemic response. Um, so I, I feel a disconnect between that, um, that justification that Judge Kelly wrote and um, what is actually playing out in real time in our state. And for those of you holding out hope that there is something called a conservative judicial philosophy that is consistent Recall that the direction at the national level is to give the president all the power and that the reigning theory is of the unitary executive as embraced by Attorney General William Barr, which means the president is all powerful. So the executive that is a Republican is all powerful. And when the executive is a Democrat, now the legislature is sovereign. I'm just saying, thinking across alleged Robert, conservative philosophy. I am I'm so glad you brought that up because that's where I wanted to go, how struck I am by what's happening between these two very conservative courts. Uh, so you stole my thunder, but it's an amazing, it's so, it's so right on. It just shows, it just shows that we don't really truly have a, conser a, a principled conservative judicial philosophy. It's, um, oh, what do they say in college? It's a post hoc reasoning uh, to justify whatever was decided by these, uh, these, this, this legislature, I think our, all, all the social scientists can understand. Claire, I want to give you any final words on this, this ruling. Otherwise, I'd like us to talk a little COVID. Yeah, let's talk COVID. You're our leading COVID expert, our healthcare expert. Um, I want to get us started by just saying, look, the numbers continue to be very, very uh, disturbing. Uh, Wisconsin continues uh, to see high rates of infections. Uh, we are seeing testing, the free testing sites uh, be extraordinarily busy as, uh, as, as folks are rightly concerned that they see COVID going up. We now have two-thirds of Wisconsin counties uh, rated at a high level of coronavirus activity. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, the state continues to be basically widely open. Uh, no masking, uh, state masking law. And Governor Evers appears that he is not going to push for one. Uh, that may change. Uh, and it's left municipalities on their own. And we have Green Bay, Milwaukee, Madison has its own masking, uh, the first one. But a number of municipalities looking at it. Claire, where the, the, this continues to be an incredibly um, challenging situation. It does continue to be an incredibly challenging situation, uh, but it also is, I would say, an increasingly worrisome situation. Um, there are, uh, and I'll tell you what I'm 
particularly most concerned with. Um, I'm concerned that we're hearing a lot of national coverage about states like Florida and Arizona and Texas that have um, cases that continue to climb and, and that we're sort of othering those states um, as if like we are not a part of that um, and, and not taking lessons from those uh, sort of cautionary tales and applying them to ourselves in our own state um, and using any sort of appropriate self-reflection uh, because when you look at Wisconsin's numbers, you can see that we are right up there with them. Um, and um, it was breaking news this week that Wisconsin has some of the worst um, reproduction uh, rates of the virus in the entire country. So um, I know Robert has talked in this podcast before about what is called the R or RT value of the virus, which basically means that um, they're tracking how many people get infected by the virus from a from a single person who already has it. Like how many people do they pass it on to? Um, because the more folks you pass it on to, the higher um, and more sharp the exponential growth rate of the number of cases in your community are. And so it's really important to track this number. Um, and when it's below one, it means that people are not passing it on to other folks um, when they have it, which means that the cases will ultimately decline. Um, but Wisconsin's is far above one and has continued to climb for weeks. And um, now we have some of the worst um, rates of reproduction of past this virus along in the country. So. The, the estimates that I've seen is that our number is closer to 1.27, 1.33, something in that range, um, which doesn't seem like a lot, but is astronomically high. Um, and, I'll, and I'll pitch it to Robert because he may have a little bit more insight on uh, what those numbers mean. Yeah, I've been kind of the uh, uh, drumbeat, boring all of you all with the uh, reproduction rate, the R naught, uh, as it's also called. And it's critically important. It isn't talked about enough in the U.S., but internationally it's considered as the most important metric. It's what Germany and the EU is using because it tells you whether it's growing and spreading or not, and it's a much better indicator of what's about to happen. In other words, when you get a really high reproduction rate, also called infection rate, by the way, you'll see it called that in some places, uh, then you could have a small number of cases, but it means it's accelerating. And Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany, has the position that if you go above one, you have to start shutting stuff down. Now, if you have good contact tracing um, and testing, then you can isolate so you don't have to shut down the whole country. But you have to find out where it's coming from and figure out how you stop that transmission. And so Wisconsin's are astronomical by that standard. And Milwaukee, unlike in the early pandemic, is not the worst Milwaukee County, though it's above one, which is disturbing because anything above one will eventually spin out of control. That's what Angela Merkel has a viral video you can see on YouTube about that has been watched, I don't know, like, like 800 million times or something. Literally, I'm not making up that number. And so the really bad hot spots I will go through right after the break. But right after the break, you'll be surprised where the hot spots actually are in Wisconsin. Some of you will be. And with that, we are going to take a break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin with Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are talking about COVID and how COVID is definitely continuing to rise here. Our first wave has not ended, and... Uh, Wisconsin now has two-thirds of our counties rated high. Robert, before the break, we had to interrupt you. You were talking more about this 
I was talking about the reproduction rate. Yep. I was talking about how it's the key metric that it's not what, but there are other key ones too, but this is the most important one because it tells you whether it's growing. And even if you have a small number of cases now, if it's high, it's high in Montana, Montana has to watch out. Okay. Even if their case load is no now, so low now. So right-wing governors, Trump, you can't just say, Hey, there are no cases. If you have a high reproduction rate, you just watch, wait a couple weeks. And Wisconsin, ours went up substantially three weeks ago, and that started to. And now look, now all of a sudden, it's out, it's starting out of control. Now, it's, I said it wasn't Milwaukee. Milwaukee's not the hot spot. And there was all sorts of racism coded and otherwise about it being black folks and Latinx folks, right? The hot spots are the college towns. So I mean Madison, Eau Claire, La Crosse, uh, Appleton, uh, Brown County's bad. That's bigger than just being a college town, but it is a college town uh, in some ways. And that so because of the bar culture, it's very high. And the other big hot spot, uh, wait for it, the Wow counties, Waukesha, um, Ozaki, and Washington counties, the exurbs around Milwaukee, the Walker Base. And if you go there, if you go to Home Depot there, no masks, not 50% masks, no masks. So those folks also packed the bars as soon as the Supreme Court, uh, partisan Supreme Court, removed the, the last feature we had, stay at home. So just remember, you're safer in Milwaukee County than you are in Waukesha, Washington, or Ozaki County, folks. So don't go to the Brookfield Mall if you're worried. So, Robert, you mentioned the masks. Masks have become the big, really the big debate uh, that's playing out here in Wisconsin. Uh, Governor Evers has said that he would like to have a statewide masking rule, but has also said he believes it would be struck down and for that reason has unilaterally disarmed and decided he won't even try, I guess, uh, leaving it to municipalities. Uh, we have Madison now with masking law. Milwaukee has looked into it. It's back going back to a committee, Green Bay, a number of other cities. In Eau Claire, we had the Chamber of Commerce call for masking in Eau Claire. So just to give you an idea, um, this, uh, you know, underscoring what Robert talked about, these small towns, um, some of the other big news this week nationally related to this is that scientists are really just increasingly wanting, putting pressure on uh, the World Health Organization and others to get much more honest about that, that this is spreading through the air and that this is not just um, something that you know, you get a little spit and it hits, you know, six feet and it drops to the ground. There's a real deep concern that this stuff is airborne. And over, I think, almost 300 scientists this week signed a letter to the WHO saying this is pretty clear and we need to uh, get get honest about this if we're actually going to be able to solve this. And of course, it would, of course, scream towards masking. Other thoughts? So. I did talk to the governor's office about masks. I think folks know, just to reiterate, that Milwaukee is trying to move one, Green Bay is trying to move one, Madison's emergency one goes into effect on Monday. Uh, and, of course, there are issues we could bring up around them, but Governor Evers has expressed interest but doubts the state Supreme Court would allow it. Um, I did speak to the governor's office. They called me about a later topic that we'll get to, and uh, so attempted to gauge this out and proposed maybe you give the Supreme Court a different case, a better case, uh, if you only applied it to 
uh, counties with a high activity rate so that it wasn't just across the board. And if you had a low activity rate, you didn't have to have a, a mass mandate and just uh, do it, right? And I, the governor's office is very disciplined, doesn't leak. I uh, didn't get much of a sense. As a skilled lobbyist, I would say that they're, they're tempted, but they're not quite ready to act, that they're sort of uh, they're what you would call they're, they're having ambivalence or dissonance over whether they want to go this direction or not and get and get slapped down by the state Supreme Court. I would make them do it, but that's my approach to politics, not the governor's. Yeah, I'll say that I hope um, I hope that as cases rise in um, counties that are represented by uh, Republicans in the legislature, that they uh, might feel the need to to come back into session and. Um, actually take some action to curb this. That might be wishful thinking is my part, but I kind of feel like I need something to hold on to, to give me hope. Um, but as we, uh, as we see cases climb across the state, as Robert said, um, outside of places like Milwaukee County and Brown County, um, as we see it climb in counties like Marquette County, Waukesha County, Tremblow County, um, you know, in these, in these solidly red parts of the county, um, you know, it, it might, maybe there'll be a situation like with uh, school funding where, you know, when, when public schools were so deeply underfunded in places like Milwaukee, um, there was not much interest in putting more money into the system than as soon as um, school districts in much more rural and conservative parts of the state started to suffer. Republicans are willing to try to put some more money into the school systems, right? So, so may, I'm, I'm holding on to a little bit of hope. I'm hoping that um, having having this problem grow across the state might wake some people up, might shake them and make them realize they need to say something. Robert, what are your thoughts? I'm just going to say that what might begin to change it is all the red governors that are being forced to act with face masks. Uh, you have uh, Governor Abbott in Texas. Uh, you have North Carolina, Democrat governor, but Kansas, fully Republican state. And Mississippi is on the verge of doing it. And in Mississippi, you can go across the Sun Belt. It's scary. Arizona's the worst. But in Mississippi, the state Republican state legislature insisted on having a session, in-person session, where they refused to wear masks because, you know, they're not masculine, as we know. They've made political. And now there are 23 state legislators infected, and the very right-wing Republican governor uh, Tate Reeves is urging people if they've been in contact with a Mississippi state legislature legislator get tested. Can you believe it? They are now the infection point, the Mississippi state legislature. So maybe Republicans here will start to rethink the know nothing position that there's no problem here, nothing to see here. I would like to uh, talk just a little bit more about the masking issue because I believe um, we have a nexus here on you know, solving or talking about the issue of Black Lives Matter and how when we implement policies, how they impact and have a, a, a race, racial implication. And so uh, I know the city of Milwaukee has been grappling uh, with the, the face masking rule and a shout out uh, to their effort to try to do this in a way where we could start to model a different role where things don't need to be enforced by the police. And so the Milwaukee masking ordinance is not the, the, the enforcement is not with the police, which um, uh, studies have demonstrated uh, will have a 
a, a terrible racial impact in terms of stay at home in Milwaukee was almost over 90% of the ordinance uh, violations and fines were to people of color. And so for the masking ordinance, the draft ordinance has the, um, this being enforced by the public health department, right? And part of what the Black Lives Matter movement is about in the defund the police is they don't need to be there for a lot of things. There are things that are much more appropriately a public health uh, person and to have public health official go to say a business that's in violation of the masking ordinance, have a public health conversation, not a police conversation, a punitive, you need to go to jail, you need to get fined, but like, hey, Here's why this is important with an owner of a business. This is the kind of thing we need to move from uh, in an approach. So um, while I know this hasn't been worked out and there's lots of complications, I think this is the right proper approach where the um, the ordinance or the law sets a standard and creates a, a culture or a, a a sense of community responsibility for what we all need to self-police and enforce. And that's really, uh, I think, an important lesson. And we'll, we'll see where the uh, masking ordinance goes. But um, I just wanted to raise that and uh, say that it's important that those that is being thought of as uh, Milwaukee tries to implement its masking, uh, its potential masking ordinance. And just one sentence on this, and it was brought up last week on Battleground Wisconsin by Jonah Bouch, our movement politics director. And that is the stay-at-home study that Wisconsin Watch did. Call out, slash out to them. Investigative reporting uh, organization connected UW Madison. The map is shocking because all the racist arguments we hear about. Oh well, there's more policing because there's more crime. Uh, does really? And the map colors in the black and brown communities are the ones with all the arrests and all the fines for stay-at-home. Does one really think, does anyone really believe that the white community was not filing stay, stay at home all the time? I live in Bayview, and there were plenty of white folks that looked like they were violating stay at home, but none of them got arrested, apparently, according to the map and according to the data. So the fact that we have a po police that literally are that racist in, systemically, they're individual cops who are great, but as a system, right, that's just terrible and awful. With that, we have got to take a break here at the... Battleground, Wisconsin, again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. We're talking about COVID and how it continues to rage here in our state. And we've had a conversation about uh, masking or not masking and uh, in terms of our communities. Um, I wanted to, before we move on, have a conversation about a story that was announced this week that I think got very little press and needs more coverage, and that is our Wisconsin Department of Health Services is basically retreating from its plans, its original plans, to actually go out and name businesses in the state that have multiple COVID cases. And we've talked a lot about what's been going on. Uh, in meatpacking and a lot of industries here, just outright racism, um, but how these businesses, um, quite frankly, have done very little uh, to protect their workers. And then that we would have the state public health service take away information, just data on who's violating, who's putting people at risk, uh, and that they back down apparently after they got blowback from the State Chamber of Commerce and the Grocers Association and the Restaurant Association and all the the uh, the big money folks, right, who, by the way, 
uh, have been fighting any real strong COVID relief and other things. Um, this, I, I think this is really bad. I think this is actually horrible. And um, we, they ought not be complicit in covering this stuff up or hiding this because let's be, this, shit, this stuff has led to deaths, right? We Briggs and Stratton's been getting a lot of coverage. And so I just think this is completely the wrong approach. We actually need sunlight on this stuff. It's the only way uh, we're going to get uh, them to change their, their ways. I wanted to get thoughts from the panel on this. I mean, the State uh, Department of Health Services um, already has well over 300 investigations into COVID outbreaks at, um, at workplaces, right? So, so we know from contact tracing that businesses and um, places of employment that are requiring people to come back into work, uh, even uh, more than restaurants and bars and whatnot, are, um, are, are places where this virus can spread. And um, if we were genuinely concerned about protecting the health of our community members, um, we should be okay with being transparent about that. And uh, so I I think it's unfortunate um, that, uh, that the department backed down from doing this. I understand politics are complicated, but it takes courage to do the right thing. Uh, and, I, and I hope that our leaders find that courage again soon. Robert, what do you think? Just remember, and we had Mark Thompson uh, on a few weeks ago to talk about this, uh, that uh, Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump want to exempt companies from liability. So you're not going to be liable for literally endangering people's health and demanding they work. And by the way, they lose their unemployment. If you have the work open, if it's unsafe, then they have to choose unemployment with no benefits. And then we're not even going to say who they are because the State Chamber of Commerce, WMC, says it will discourage business. Well, I'm sorry. That you, if you're not going to have shaming, so to speak, like really bad companies that are infecting people are made public, you're not going to enforce the nation's OSHA laws, right, occupational safety laws, which the Trump administration is not doing. It's not just the liability exemption they want to put through the next COVID relief. They're not enforcing the laws. So you're literally going back to the 19th century and saying not only can you kill people, no one has to know about it. So this is just gross. And it tells you, it, uh, you know, I believe that a merger in order to have a governing party between the moderate and progressive wings of the Democratic Party is essential. But it just shocks me how moderate Democrats give in to right-wing trade associations that do everything they can to make sure that the Republicans can dominate government and then turn around and whine because the skies are always falling, and they literally cave after they've already, because they're part of the Republican establishment that took away all of his actual public health powers, the governors and Secretary Paul. Sorry, but... This is outrageous, and I think there needs to be really public pushback on Evers and his WEDEC secretary, who was out of business, uh, to actually act like the government and act on behalf of citizens, not just a clearinghouse for business interests. Yeah. yeah. I, look, oh, you go, Claire. Go, Claire. I want to add one thing to add to this outrage, right? Because as Robert was talking, I sort of remembered my uh, initial increased outrage when I read the stories about this. Um, and uh, Fox News, the Milwaukee Fox News affiliate, um, did a story on this, and they have a quote from a Republican legislator um, 
uh, Dilka Penga from the uh, Dulles Field area of, or sorry, Chris Kapenga, not Dilka, Dilkuya and Chris Kapenga. Um, so Chris Kapenga from the Dulles Field area of Greater Milwaukee had a quote um, about why he supported not naming these businesses. And he said that it would be, quote, a roadblock to their recovery, unquote, and, quote, could be the final nail in the coffin for many, unquote. Presumably, he means many businesses which I find absolutely abhorrent because you cannot find a more clear or crystallized statement from a Republican legislator that very much says, I prioritize keeping businesses out of coffins over keeping people out of coffins. What a cold and unfeeling thing to say when Wisconsin has already lost, are we up to 800 deaths now? We're certainly well past 700 deaths across the state. Like those are real people who ended up in coffins and you're concerned about businesses going under, businesses being, I mean, just incredibly unfeeling choice of words, right? Especially when this probably would not keep that many people from part, like using businesses, right? It just would help them make informed decisions about how safe they need to be when they engage, as, as go to those businesses and how they engage with those businesses and how safe they need to be when they do it, right? The forms in which maybe I'm going to buy online instead of going into the store, right? I'm going to order pickup from that restaurant instead of actually going to a sit down or I'm right? It just, it's so, it is so unfeeling and such, such a poor and telling choice of words, that statement. It, I, how do I finish this sentence? I can't finish the sentence. Yeah. Let me just say, Claire, because this is a great riff on your part. Let me just say, Senator Kapanga, businesses don't die in coffins and get buried in cemeteries. People do. And how many coffins you need to generate in order to keep your, be, keep your business-friendly reputation going out in Delafield? Look, this is, um, this is critically important. Robert, you mentioned uh, what Mark Thompson said, what's happening at the federal level. If we do not have any light or transparency on this, this is one of the ways that in the future we're going to see the spread happening, right? Look what happened in Brown County. Uh, before Brown County really became a hotspot, it started in the workplaces and the workplaces secrecy and the lack of caring as a community enough and the leaders, and we heard this out of the Supreme Court justice, uh, has led to this. And so like, actually, this is one of the most important areas we need full transparency to understand, uh, where this is spreading, especially since we are clearly opening up, we're going to have businesses open. We don't have laws that, you know, mandate masks. So uh, we need to know which businesses are actually providing safe places and doing a good job of making sure they're not leading to the spread. And so this is one of the few areas where we have that transparency. And I'm just sorry, people are dying and a lot of people are dying because they're getting COVID at work. And so this is just, uh, I just, this has to change. This can't be okay. Uh, uh, shout out to BOSIS de la Frontera and, and their folks. They've been working a lot. And I know a number of unions have been with all of their members on trying to fix this, but we need to like continue to keep pressure on this. Uh, and so I'm encouraging our listeners to reach out to the, to the uh, Evers administration and let them know that we need transparency here. This is very important. By the way, the uh, chamber uh, speaking of not kind of knowing politically who your friends and enemies are, 
The chamber didn't even give the Evers administration any credit on this. They blasted them and said that he was providing confusion. So you didn't even get any like sort of political appreciation from from these guys, mostly guys, right, at, in these chambers uh, for his position. They immediately still attacked him publicly. So like it's just from just a raw political standpoint, it's like, um, geez, bad, bad, and we need we need we need to get them to change. I don't know if anyone has any other final thoughts because I know we're getting close to a break. Yeah, I have one final thought since you brought up meatpacking. Um, and this is something I've been mulling over for the past week. Uh, so last week, uh, Citizen Action put out a report and we talked about on the podcast about the uh, amount of wealth that billionaires have accumulated and the amount of their wealth has grown over the past uh, three or four months that um, the rest that we've been dealing with this pandemic, right? Um, and so we talked about John Menard and Diane Hendricks, but one person we did not talk about is James Cargill of the Cargill family, um, who leads a, um, a meat production empire, right? And so that uh, so John Cargill's uh, wealth increased from $2.7 billion to $3.3 billion, right? So his wealth increased $588 million over the past three months, a 20, almost 22% um, increase. And I'm not saying that the Cargill family owns the meatpacking plants in Brown County. I don't know, to be honest. Um, but if, but when taken from sort of a mega high level, like this is a very clear example of how the people who own industries, the people who own the meat processing industries are increasing their wealth tremendously while the frontline workers in the meat uh, production um, industry are, are dying, right? And so this is another example of how our society is protecting high-level industry and the wealthy at the expense and the lives of workers and low-income folks, especially black and brown folks in the and with that, we, And with that, we are going to have to take a break here at the Battleground Wisconsin. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back. We were talking, we have been talking about the lack of information uh, that is going to be released about businesses and um, uh, whether they've had multiple COVID cases. Uh, and all of this is super important in part because we know that the federal government support uh, for workers and the unemployed and the extra relief is going to end in July. So this is even increasingly more important uh, as people's uh, livelihoods are, are now on the line. And to that end this week in uh, Citizen Action, along with uh, U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin, we did a an online town hall where we were able to talk really about new legislation that Baldwin would have that would extend the unemployment work share, uh, which a lot of businesses are using, uh, before this July deadline runs out. Robert, give us the highlights of what what uh, uh, Senator Baldwin is proposing and why this is so critical. Yeah, we had a uh, statewide Zoom call with Tammy Baldwin, which I was uh, fortunate enough to MC with the senator, but we had a huge audience of, of Citizen Action members, a lot of media watching. And it's interesting because it's right ahead, a day, uh, two days ahead today, Tammy Baldwin and Senator Tammy Duckworth from uh, Illinois are co-hosting uh, the role of Biden's economic agenda, which has some of these ideas, because as we'll may mention later, Sanders and Biden have come to agreements on a huge number of platform planks in their task force process, a unity platform. And so what we talked about is 
first, the importance of keeping up what we're doing. We're about to cut off people from the extra uh, unemployment benefits, the coverage of more gig workers that aren't usually covered by unemployment, the money for people who are doing work sharing, which is critical because that allows companies to keep you employed but reduce hours so they can stay afloat, far more effective than the failed and corrupt loan program for small businesses that we all know about. And so there's that. Literally, it's going to fall, July 25th in Wisconsin, everyone's cut off. It's already depression-like conditions. Imagining what's going to happen, the number of foreclosures, the number of people who can't put food on the table. It's just going to be awful, and we're that close to it. But then we know, and by the way, when this was done late March, we didn't know we were going to have the worst pandemic response in the whole world. Uh, and so, of course, they thought maybe the federal government would act like it usually would and take it as a national emergency and that we'd be better shape and we should revisit it in July. OK, so they made the corporate part permanent, which is always what happens in D.C., given the power of money and lobbying. But then secondarily, it's not enough. This is a Great Depression like situation. So Tammy Baldwin is calling for and we've been pushing this and she's on board and is pushing this hard in the next COVID relief. Um, literally New Deal-style solutions, federally subsidized jobs programs to actually put people back to work, to target things we really need and target people who need the work, who are left out, that the market will not be employing. And so you cannot leave it just to the market. That's what we learned in the New Deal, right? You had to employ people. And you can also deal with racial equity uh, because a lot of folks have been locked out of this job market well before COVID-19, as we all know, and, it's, and the racial disparities are horrendous in Wisconsin and nationally. And then on top, we need to do a green transition, or we're going to have a climate genocide, and we need to start right now. And so just as the New Deal, right, built the, not only relieved people, in other words, kept them in, in home and fed and with, uh, with all, the, all the necessities of life, the New Deal also used that work, that workforce, to build the new economy that led to four decades of unparalleled prosperity and the creation of the largest middle class in human history after the war. And so we could build the new green economy since we need to employ people anyway, or they will literally have 19th century style conditions in this country very quickly, starting in August. So she's thinking big. And Biden is behind. Joe Biden is behind. And Bernie Sanders has been really pushing him a big federal jobs program. And one other thing I'll say before Claire goes, but this may be a good tie in for Claire. We need hundreds of thousands of contact tracers. You know, the Wisconsin contact tracing rate right now is 20 percent. That's partly why it's taking off. And we need better, more, more people for testing. Do you know what we found out across the country is, is that when the testing takes a week or more to come back, it's too late to contact trace, even if you had that capacity, which we don't. And so if you want to be open and have an economy, you need the testing, you need the contact tracing, and we don't have either right now, and we need workers to do it. These could be permanent public health jobs, and a lot of women of color could be employed. This is exactly the kind of work that women of color and women in general often predominate in, these uh, paraprofessional professions like nursing home aides and home health aides and other caregivers that are badly exploited in our economy. So hopefully the contact tracing is a lead in for Claire, our healthcare guru. Yeah, uh, I, I agree uh, that the contact tracing positions would be a natural place for us to uh, grow the workforce and in particular employ a number of folks who are, uh, who have been laid off or, um, 
have had to reduce hours as the economy shrank during the uh, pandemic and the initial response. It would be sort of a natural leeway, could have tremendous economic effects, uh, positive economic effects for those folks and their families, uh, and also positive public health effects for the, the community. Um, so I, I think that's really important. With that, I want us to quickly change topics before the show ends. Um, Robert, I'm going to go to you because you track this very closely. You were on the uh, uh, Sanders platform team in 2016. But uh, big news today as we record was uh, is that uh, there has been an agreement and a compromise reached between uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, Joe Biden on how we could have a uh, move move uh, Biden to, to the left on a number of key issues and have unification before uh, before the convention between progressives and the middle of the party. Uh, give us the details, and uh, will this uh, will this work? This just hit yesterday, and we're all sorting out the implications. I can tell you that Sanders Sanders has felt very good about this process, unlike 2016. He says Biden's serious, Biden's moving on the economy and climate, and there are some real big proposals of a Bernie style that are in there, moving on college tuition, moving on health care, but not obviously all the way to Medicare for all because uh, Biden won, right? So this is a matter of, of, of movement uh, with more of the, uh, the, the both the Sanders and Warren platforms. And Sanders's opinion is, is that this is, good, is the most progressive Democratic platform um, in decades and that Biden will be the most progressive president since FDR if he actually implements what was agreed to in the last few weeks and was finally put out um, on Wednesday of this week. And so there'll be more discussions of this, obviously, and a lot of digging into details. It'll be very hard to pass. Uh, but then again, that's why we need a unified party, both to get a landslide in this election and take the U.S. Senate. And then moderates need to let progressives in because we need the energy of progressives and the ideas that are now included in the Biden platform to actually be able to do the things we need to do on racial justice, on COVID-19, um, on a whole brand new economy, on climate, uh, you name it, all the big challenges we face. So this is exciting. We're still digging into details. There are plenty of things that not their progressives want, but there's been major progress. And I think we should listen to Senator Sanders here that this is big and this is large movement and then build upon that because that'll create a much bigger voting base and we won't have the kind of enthusiasm gap if this works that we had that's what we have to avoid that really uh, really harmed hillary clinton in 2016 and this is where the action is because unlike 2016 where bernie had enough delegates to actually force a minority report and force a huge floor fight on the convention uh, he doesn't now, and neither does Warren. And so this was the action. Biden was not forced procedurally to negotiate. He chose, decided it was in his political interest to try to meet uh, the, the, the uh, progressive wing as far along as possible. And so this is probably most of what they're agreeing to. Probably the platform committee, which I was on, is less significant this cycle. Claire, do you have anything you want to add? Sure, I can talk for um, a minute about the the healthcare aspects of the platform. 
Um, so um, noticeably absent is sort of a single payer Medicare for all type style system, although that's not a tremendous surprise because um, Joe Biden has always been a supporter of the public option, or at least during this campaign has been a, traditionally a supporter of the sort of public option system. Um, there have been some small improvements in it. So a guarantee in his platform that his version of a public option would um, involve no cost to patients, uh, primary care doctor visits for some uh, most commonly used medications, uh, prescription drugs. So that's all very positive. Um, he also lowers the age people qualify for Medicare from 65 to 60, which is a big deal, and strengthens Medicare, which is a really big deal, by um, having it also include dent dental, vision, and hearing um, coverage, which is, is, is really important because we know that those are things that uh, seniors deal with a lot. It also provides a health care guarantee for folks during the pandemic that are recently unemployed or uninsured. I would prefer that he did that through a public um, health care coverage system like Medicaid or Medicare and through COBRA, which I view as kind of propping up private insurance companies a little bit, which is unfortunate, but at least it's a health care guarantee during a pandemic. Um, so it's, it's, it's clearly a compromise. Or people can buy a plan on the private market. One sentence to that, Pramila Jayapal, uh, Bernie Sanders, chief negotiator and uh, sponsor of Medicare for All in the House, thinks it was major progress. The public option is much stronger. It's fully public. It's a Medicare option. And so that's what we could build on eventually towards Medicare for All all the way is a very strong Medicare system. Uh, so it makes the system much more public even though it doesn't go all the way. So Pramila Jayapal and Bernie Sanders both consider it major progress. I'm glad you added Pramila. When I heard Pramila feel much better and saying very positive things, uh, I tend to use her as a gauge for myself. So that was good to hear. Um, but folks, we got to actually uh, start to wrap this podcast up. Before I do, though, I do want to mention that Governor Evers People's Maps Commission is going to be kicking off. We'll talk more about this next week, but uh, we've talked in the past about this. Governor Evers wants to uh, have a very different redistricting than what's going to be uh, on the minds of the Republicans. Instead of closed doors, lawyers, uh, secret contract signings that you won't talk, a very public, very public process that gets people involved in making sure that people elect and pick their legislators not the other way but with that we got to wrap this podcast up uh we want to thank our producer brian Wilbridge, who makes it happen every week and we will see you all next week here at the battleground wisconsin